There are some people who react to that sermon or to, to sermons like that by thinking, well, I'd love to do that, but it's not my thing. I'm, I'm too shy, I wouldn't know what to say, and, and uh, I couldn't stand on the street corner and preach, and I couldn't do that, and, and so, you know, I, I, I agree with it, but it's difficult for me. And uh, so I just want to kind of respond to that if I might, just for about five minutes. Um, and um, just tell you a way in which um, I have found opportunities to talk to people about Jesus um, without it being stressful. Now, one of my favorite verses is in 1 Peter 3.15. This isn't the sermon, by the way. Sorry, that's going to be a bit longer. But... Um, in 1 Peter 3.15, um, he says this, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. I believe that as Christians, if, if we're not too bold in sharing our gospel, one of the good things we can do is pray for what we used to call years ago divine appointments. Do you know what I mean by that? Divine opportunities, God-given opportunities to share the gospel where it just flows naturally and easily. And I'll just share a couple that uh, uh, come to mind that I've had. So I've, I've made it my policy over the years to pray for divine opportunities um, because uh, it can't always be good at um, witnessing, but when, when we get these divine opportunities, it's a lot easier. I remember a few years ago when I was uh, in hospital, I, I was only for about four days for something fairly minor, but I was in um, a, a room with four, three, four men, including me. Um, next to me there was a young guy about 30 who had uh, been rushed in uh, with uh, appendix about to burst and been taken immediately down and, had his appendix removed. An extraordinary young man, he was just coming round from the anaesthetic, propped himself up, and the nurse said, can I get you anything? And he said, I'll have a hand or cheese sandwich, please. So she went and got my cheese sandwich, and there he was, with his eyes only just opening, and a cheese sandwich, I just don't know how he managed that. But, uh, there was him, opposite me was a, a, a man in about 40s that worked on a building site, and then in the other bed, uh, a man in his 80s who, who was not too well either. And uh, I always took a Bible in whenever I'd been in hospital, not the big study Bible I bring to church, but um, a, a smaller Bible, and I always used to leave it on top of my locker. Well, about half past ten at night, we were still awake, although we probably shouldn't have been, um, this young male nurse came in, and sat on the end of my bed, and he said, hope you don't mind, but can I ask you some questions? And so I said, yeah, by all means, imagine thinking it was to do with why I was in there. And he said, uh, how can I know for sure I'm a Christian? He said, how can I know I'm going to heaven? How can I know that my sins are forgiven? Just like that, one question after the other, and there I was, it was just a divine appointment. I was able to share with him quite simply um, the gospel about the cross and 
about uh, giving our lives to Jesus. And not only that, not only was he listening, but the other three guys in the room were, I could tell they were listening as well. So, yeah, it's just a divine appointment. Another one that comes to mind is, um, I went to visit a, um, a couple, an elderly couple, I might say elderly, but I'm my age. <laughs> now I forget I'm getting on a bit as well. And, um, and the, the, the wife came to church, but the husband didn't. And his name was Fred. And while I was there, I noticed a, a sort of glass cabinet with lots of small trophies in it. And so I, I said, I said, what are the trophies for and who won them? And uh, so Fred said rather sheepishly, well, I won them. I, I used to play in the snooker league. And he said, they're all the trophies I've won. He said, but as you can see, I've got really bad arthritis now and, and uh, I can't play anymore and nobody wants to play with me now as I'm not so good as I was. Um, and I said, well, I'll give you a game of snooker occasionally if you like. And he was a retired traffic warden and he was still a member of the police social club. And on top of the police station in Bath was a big room where the canteen was in one part and uh, a big full-size snooker table in the other. So every Monday afternoon, as Jean and I took Mondays off, while Jean was getting the children from the school, I used to go up there with Fred and play snooker. Well, one day, in the middle of our snooker game, um, the chef came in with his white son, and he was having a cigarette watching us play snooker. And he looked at me and said, are you one of the policemen then? And I laughed and said, no, I'm not tall enough for that. But uh, I said, no, I'm Fred's church minister. And he stood there and he just said to me, I wish I had faith. I don't know how to have faith. I'd love to have faith and believe in God, but I don't know how. And there in the snooker hall, I stopped the game. I was just having to share the gospel. It was quite simple and natural. And not only was the chef listening, but Fred was listening. And shortly after that, Fred started coming to church and when we had an evangelist, a little after that, he gave his life to Christ. Just a couple of Many little incidents like that, that what I call divine appointments. And it doesn't take a lot of boldness or a lot of courage or a lot of skill just to tell what Jesus did and how we came, became Christians. But you need to pray for divine appointments. If you feel, I could never kind of stand on a street corner or, or preach the gospel, you can talk to people. You do it all every day. So pray for divine appointments. So when I preached the gospel last week, it wasn't to kind of make you feel guilty, it was to encourage you that we need to get the gospel out there. And if you come with courage to it, like a preacher does, then nevertheless you can pray, well, give me someone to talk to, that this week maybe, that I can share the truth of the gospel with. Now I have to say, just before you think, Oh, I'm really good at this. There are many times, I'll be absolutely honest, when God has given me divine appointments and I've been on it. I've been too timid to take them, or I've just kind of missed it. And um, that, that's going to happen to you sometimes. And if it does, don't feel guilty about it, because that's part of our humanity and our friends. 
But pray for the one Pope, if you felt after my sermon last week that, well, I'd love to do that, but I can't. Yes, you can. Pray for those. If you have a Bible, will you turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10? Beginning to read at verse 19, down to verse 25. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as the habit of some is. We're going to stop there. I love verse 24, um, I want to deal with the whole of that passage, but verse 24 says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards life and good deeds. In other words, how we can be encouragers. For many years, I had a lady in my church called Faith, an elderly lady, and she saw her ministry as that of being an encourager. After the service, she would go up to the worship team uh, and worship leaders and tell them how wonderful the worship was with a big smile on her face. Then she'd come up to me uh, and say to me, what, even if it was a, a very poor sermon, I'd really struggled, she'd come up and tell me what a wonderful sermon it was and how it had blessed her with a big smile on her face. And you could tell that she really meant it. She wasn't just saying it, she really meant it. She was an encourager. Now I know that sometimes we in ministry need constructive criticism. I accept that. But I've always found there's an ample supply of people willing to give that. <laughs> yes, and I know that there are people who are afraid to give people in ministry encouragement in case we get big heads or proud. And again, I don't think there's much chance of that because there are plenty of people I find who see it their life's mission to keep us humble. So for me, give me faith's ministry any day. That's for me. I love people who are encouragers. Let me read that to you again. And let us consider 
how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. God loves to encourage us and encourage us to be encouragers. Now what I want to do this morning for a few minutes, I want to bring you God's encouragement and then talk about how we can encourage one another. Verse 19 to 21. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Access to God is available directly through the Lord Jesus Christ to anyone who believes. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Ephesians 3.12 says that we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. The writer to the letter, we don't know who that was, tells us he is writing who he's writing to. He calls them brethren. After the resurrection of Jesus, the Lord spoke in Matthew 28.10 to the disciples as my brethren. Hebrews 2.11 says, he is not ashamed to call them, that's us, brethren. We as born-again believers, the saints of God, are brothers and sisters with Christ in God's family, or as verse 21 puts it, in the house of God. Now for many years, my stepbrother in America pastored a, a thriving Pentecostal church. When we visited, and the children were younger, and, and we, we first visited, um, they felt it was rather quaint because in their church they didn't refer to people by their first names. We were brother Tanzend, and my wife was sister Tanzend, and, and so on. And they thought, how quaint this is. Quaint it might have been, but it did bring home to people that we're part of God's family. We belong to God and to one another. Now please note, I'm not suggesting we adopt that practice here. So please don't all come up to me after the service and say, hello, Brother Townsend, my name's David and I'm happy with that. We are God's children. And we have boldness or confidence to enter, the Bible says, the holiest by the blood of Jesus. One commentator says, to the Jewish believers, to whom this was originally written, this was an amazing concept. Judaism never conceived of personal access to God. God dwelt in the Holy of Holies in the temple. 
However, because Jesus died on the cross, the blood of Jesus has been applied to our lives, and because of that, we can step right in to the very presence of God. God's presence. And it says with boldness or confidence at any time in any place. Now if that's not encouraging, I don't know what is. That's God's encouragement. There's more to come though from the Lord. Note in verse 20 that we come to God in a new and living way. It's new in the sense that, uh, that we live under the new covenant, not the old. One commentator puts it like this. It is a living way, new and living way. Under the old covenant, the high priest had access because of the blood of a dead animal. Now under the new covenant, we have access because of the perfect sacrifice of the sinless Son of God. And it is as if the living, resurrected Jesus ushers us in to the throne room of God. Jesus opened this new and living way through the veil that is his flesh. In the temple, as you know, there was a huge veil that separated the Holy of Holies, where God dwelt, from the rest of the people. However, at the very moment that Jesus died on the cross, Matthew 27, 51 says, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. God did it. It wasn't bottom to top, it was top to bottom. God tore that veil in two. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for our sins forever removes the barrier between us and God. Verse 21 tells us that Jesus is our high priest over the house of God. High is translated from the Greek word megas. In other words, he's a mega priest. One writer said, Jesus is not just any priest, but he is mighty, distinguished, exalted, eminent, outstanding. That's what that word means. We don't need any human priest to stand between us and God. The Lord Jesus died on the cross for our sins to give us access to God now. And he lives forever, the Bible says, to make intercession for us. Hebrews 7.25. The way has been open. There's no barrier for us now. But then he says we must draw near to God. There's no greater admonition in Scripture than this. Let us draw near to God. James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. One writer says, what is the remedy for stale spirituality? How do we exit the barren desert of spiritual drought? We draw near. The veil is gone. Our sins are forgiven. The only barriers now between us and God are those we build ourselves. The Bible says, let us draw near. Another writer says, the problem of access to God has been settled. 
The problem of a perfect high priest has been settled. The problem of our moral and spiritual condition has been settled. All the barriers are gone. So what hinders us? The encouragement to draw near would not have been given unless it was necessary. These Christians, these Hebrew Christians, had a problem drawing near. They were discouraged. And they were keeping the distance. They may have thought they had many problems. They had persecution, for sure. Maybe they had difficult relationships. Hard times with their culture or the economy was uh, going down the tubes. But this was their real problem. They had lost their intimate relationship with Jesus. Nothing else was going right because of that. You may have many problems this morning, but the answer to them all begins here. Draw near to God. Verse 22 gives us three criteria for drawing near to God. The first one says we draw near with a true heart. A true heart is sincere, genuine, without hypocrisy, willing to hear and obey. Deuteronomy 4.29 says, You will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. One writer says, Every Sunday, many hundreds of thousands of people file into churches around the world. They sing the songs, they give their offerings, they hear the sermons, they file out only to return next week to do the same thing all over again. For many, this is a mere habit and routine. There's nothing sincere or genuine about their worship. Now I hope that's not so for us, but for many, he says, his experience was that that is the case. Jesus described such bland, lifeless worship in Matthew 15, 8. He said, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon said, if it is heartless worship, it is unacceptable. God cannot receive it. If we have not thrown our heart into it, depend upon it, God will never take it to his heart and be pleased with it. Only that prayer which comes from our heart can get to God's heart. How about us? Are we drawing near to God with a true heart? Then he says, we must draw near in full assurance of faith. Full assurance of faith. Even though we stumble and fall, even though we're constantly reminded of our own unworthiness, we can have full assurance of faith. Because God accepts us and gives us access not because of our goodness, but because of the blood of Jesus. Ephesians 1 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches 
of his grace. This is why theology is important. We don't trust in our feelings, we trust in facts. The facts are that we are desperate sinners, but Jesus died for our sins and called us to himself. That's why Fanny Crosby could write that old hymn, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Ear of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit and washed in his blood. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Saviour all the day long. The writer says we come close to God also with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The Jewish believers understood the metaphor of being sprinkled clean. Under the old covenant, the priests sprinkled blood on the worshippers when they came before the Lord. It was symbolic today of how we, through Jesus and the blood of Christ, are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, says the writer to the Hebrews. When we believed on Jesus, he forgave all our sin, he freed us from guilt. Our position in Christ this morning is we are clean. Some commentators describe the bodies washed, referring to baptism, but others to the work of the Holy Spirit changing us into Christ's image. So one writer says, just as the blood of Christ cleanses us on the inside and makes us potentially clean, the Spirit of God and the Word of God wash us on the outside and conform us into his image. Uh, recently, as some of you know, my sister Melanie died, but some many years before that, uh, another sister of mine, Penny, she died of, of cancer. And uh, obviously at her funeral, uh, my mother was still alive then, and, uh, and uh, I met at Penny's funeral a number of people we'd grown up in neighbours and so on, and uh, one was there who I used to, a young man who I used to play with all those years before, called Steve Woodgate, and uh, um, I, I chatted with him for a while. And when he moved away, my mother drew near and said, um, "Do you remember that you gave Stephen a Bible when you were young men?" And he went on to make the decision for Christ. Then she added sadly, but he's struggling with his walk with God now. These Christians that the writer to the Hebrews uh, was speaking to, they were struggling with their walk with God at that moment. And it may be this morning there's some folk here and you're struggling with your walk with God this morning. Sometimes we do struggle, but we can be assured that our hope and our faith, as I said a moment ago, does not rest in our feelings or in our being in our best spiritual condition, but in the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Verse 23, he says, we must hold fast to the hope. Charles Spurgeon again, 
that exhortation, let us hold fast, might well be written on the cover of every Christian's Bible. We live in such a changing age, and we need all to be exhorted, to be rooted and grounded, confirmed and established in the truth. Guthrie commenting on this verse, we must hold fast to the hope, says, without wavering, and I think it's how the authorised version renders it. He says the Greek word translated in this is used only here in the New Testament and is based on the idea of an object being upright, not inclining from the true perpendicular. Now the idea is this. Imagine a vase on a pedestal. And as you go by, you accidentally knock the pedestal and the vase begins to wobble this way and that or waver, as the authorised version would describe it, is wavering this way and that, as though it's going to fall over. But here he said, when we hold fast through faith, it's set upright again. One writer says, we all engage in wavering from time to time. We all have our fears, we all have our moments of doubt and despair, we all have times when we wonder if God really cares, if he really loves us, if he's ever going to deliver us. But we must not keep feeding our doubts and fears. To be encouraged, we've got to take a fresh grip on the confession of our hope. How can we be sure of our faith? How can we be so sure of our confession? How can we be certain of the Bible? This verse gives the answer. It says, for he who promised is faithful. You can look back in history and see the tremendous promises that God has kept, that he made. And some of us who have been Christians a long time, we can look back in our own lives and be encouraged by the many times we prayed and God had answered. Or we, he's given us a promise we've held on to and he's fulfilled it. God is faithful. 1 Thessalonians 5, 24 says, He who calls you is faithful, who will also do it. When I'm done, I remember the faithfulness of God over the years and believe in Him for the future. Now, I don't want to bore you with this, but I've told you before that my parents were divorced when I was a toddler. That, I'm not going to repeat that bit again. But my mother did, what I haven't told you is, my mother did remarry. And my stepfather was alright with we three children from the first marriage. But he never treated us as his children, and he never behaved towards us as a father. So I grew up all my life never knowing fatherly care or the embrace of a father. But something happened. When I was nine or ten years old, I can't remember exactly, I had a dog that I felt the world of, and it got sick, and it died. And I was really upset by that. And uh, someone had told the pastor of the Elam Church about that. And one day when I was coming home from school, it just so happened as I turned the corner, the pastor of the Elam Church and his wife were coming the other way. And he stopped me there in the street and he said, I'm so sorry, or something like that. He talked to me about how sorry he was uh, that I lost my dog and was upset. 
And I remember it distinctly. He was a tall man and he gathered me in this tight embrace and just held me there for a long time. Now, as I say, I can't remember the words he spoke to me, but I've never forgotten that embrace, that fatherly, loving embrace. And I want to say to you this morning, perhaps it's not the words that I'm speaking that you'll remember, but if you draw near to God, then he wants to just throw his arms around you and embrace you with his love and his care and just say to you, all is okay, I've got you. That's what he wants to do. And let us consider, verse 23 says, this is the last part and conclude with this, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Christians, we live in a sphere of two relationships, a vertical and horizontal. Vertically with God and horizontally with others. So both are important. One writer said, God designed you to relate to other believers. That's one of the purposes of the church. The first two points in this scripture, he goes on to say, are about receiving encouragement from God. The last one is about receiving and giving encouragement to one another. The author uses the word, let us provoke one another in the authorised version. And, and that's what the Greek literally means uh, when it says encourage. It means to provoke. Now, it doesn't mean provoke though in a negative sense, but in a positive sense. One writer's commentator suggested this may indicate that the believers, the Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, were already provoking one another in a negative way, such as in arguing or disagreements. And so the author uses the same word to tell them strongly to provoke one another towards love instead. What he's really saying is, with the same energy that you're using to provoke one another negatively, used to encourage one another instead. So often in churches, there's too much of the negative provoking of one another. We need the positive encouragement for one another. Let us consider one another. This week, let's consider how we can encourage someone. I don't know if you've ever read in Matthew 10.42, where it says that Jesus says, even if you give a cup of cold water in my name, you will not use, lose your reward. It's so easy for us to miss what he's saying there. You see, in Bible times, the water was drawn from a well. It might be some distance from where somebody lived. First thing in the morning, the job of someone was to go to that well and to draw up, wind up the heavy uh, bucket full of water and to fill containers and carry them back for the daily use of the household for the day. Now in that hot climate, during the day, that water would warm up. They didn't have fridges. It would warm up. So if you had a visitor come in the afternoon, 
you've been given, you'd have water there to give, but it'd be warm water. So if you wanted to give them a cup of cold water, it meant another trip back to the well, pulling up the, the bucket again to pour out that cold, refreshing water. I think the people of Jesus' time would have understood what he was saying. That sometimes, if you're going to encourage someone, it might mean a bit of effort. You've got to put yourself out. You've got to do something that costs you something. There's a buzzword that lots of speakers are using today. Have you picked up on it? The word intentional. <laughs> and you hear it all the time today. It's the buzz in buzzword. Well, can I say this? Sometimes encouragement needs to be intentional. You need to make an effort. So let me just say this so close. In this passage, God encourages us, encourages us to draw near to him and know his loving embrace. Just like the prodigal son went back to his father and his father threw his arms around him. But he also encourages us to encourage one another, even if it costs us something to do.